here's a riddle for you. How is it that Uber, the world's largest taxi company, doesn't own any vehicles? Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, doesn't create any content. Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, doesn't own any real estate. And yet for all three companies, business is booming. Congratulations, you've entered the digital economy where business transactions take place in the cloud and the biggest assets are intangible. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, T-Tax Tattles. And today, we're coming to you live from Cross-Border Solutions Quarterly Summit in beautiful Sarasota, Florida, to discuss the digital economy and what it means for transfer pricing. Fiona, our AI genius, is here helping us keep it real with solid facts and information. By the way, Fiona's wisdom grows every day on the Amazon Alexa platform. Feel free to channel her wide range of transfer pricing knowledge by asking her questions on the Echo Dot anytime. Don't you just love it here, Fiona? It's quite nice, Matt, but you know the beach isn't really my thing. Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song is also in the house, and we have a very special guest with us today, all the way from Marsh and McLennan's Hoboken, New Jersey office. Aaron Perks is here to help us navigate a business world that we can't even see, and you can earn CPE credits for listening to this episode. Here's how it works. We're planning two code words in the podcast. Send both, and yes, you need both of them, to The Fiona Show, all one word, at crossbordersolutions.io, not .com, .io, and we'll We'll send out the certificates. Now, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news this week. The Swedish tax authorities want excellent transfer pricing documentation. We know what you're thinking. Who doesn't, right? Well, the Swedes take it to a whole nother level, offering to reduce penalties by half. Half if your transfer pricing documentation isn't up to snuff. That's a big deal, especially when you consider that Swedish transfer pricing penalties are steep. Usually 40% of the additional tax calculated from adjustments or 10% of the reduced losses. Of course, to qualify for that kind of discount, your documentation must be perfect, meaning it must meet all of Sweden's requirements, comply with international standards, and accurately reflect your cross-border business. Also, the authorities stress the importance of contemporaneous transfer pricing documentation, which you can look at one of two ways, like a royal pain, or given the upside, a total no-brainer. While Hong Kong has been busy since the beginning of the month, Hong Kong's Inland Revenue Department has signed not one, not two, but three, count them, three country-by-country report agreements. Now, if you're doing business in Hong Kong and Italy or Austria or Mexico and file in Hong Kong, you're only on the hook for one CBC report. Indeed, the territory seems a little promiscuous with the contract signing lately. Hopefully, the former British colony at least got dinner out of it. Well, the U.S. is not so happy with France on April 10th. The French National Assembly passed the digital service tax. You'll be hearing more on this later. A unilateral 3% tax on annual France revenue for companies that bring in more than 750 million euros and do not have a physical presence in France, but do profit from French citizens. If the French Senate passes the tax, still to be determined, but if they do, the French government estimates that it will bring in an extra 500 million euros Good for them, right? But for the U.S., not so much. In fact, the U.S. insists that this tax goes against current tax treaties and will disproportionately affect American companies, possibly subjecting them to double taxation. The U.S. is dead set on a global response to digital business and has urged France and other countries considering the digital service tax to hold off until the OECD comes through with a recommendation. Of course, the organization doesn't exactly move at lightning speed, more like molasses, no quicksand, more like molasses and quicksand. So France says, we, for right now, will Freedom Fries make a comeback? Stay tuned. I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us 
for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Formerly a transfer pricing consultant at BDO at Ernst & Young in Europe and Africa, and now the acting head of global transfer pricing at Marsh & McLennan, Erin Perks has had a front row seat to transfer pricing's coming-of-age evolution throughout her career. These days, she uses that experience to tackle IP strategy, business valuations, international tax, and transfer pricing policy planning. But this morning, she, along with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song, is going digital, unpacking a cloud-based economy and the impact it will have on transfer pricing as we know it. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Now, let's get this GabFest going. Mimi, I allow you to take it away. Thank you, Matthew. So before we get into this exciting topic about the digital economy, Aaron, let's find out a little bit about you. How did you get into transfer pricing? Well, Mimi, I would say transfer pricing actually found me. Um, I was living in Europe at the time and one of the big four uh, was looking for someone who spoke English and had a background in international business and economics. So luckily I fit that bill. I um, learned about transfer pricing on the train on the way to my interview. And lucky I did. Um, and I've been with it for about 10 years now. So from a transfer pricing perspective, being in the industry for over 10 years now, what do you think are the biggest challenges today versus when you might have started in the past? Right? Sure. It's a good question. And I think, honestly, had you asked me this question a year or two ago, it may have been a different answer. Mm -hmm. um, right now, I, I honestly think it's people. It's manpower. Um, there's so many regulations that are coming through right now, so many changes that are happening on a global scale. And it's very difficult for companies to keep pace with that. Um, and so I feel like we're constantly responding to more and more um, with the exact same amount of resources that we've had for many years past. The idea of doing more with less, right? Yes. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know, your, in terms of your background experience, you've been at different consulting firms, but you were actually in Germany as well as South Africa and in, in a variety of different countries. And from my perspective, Germany would be a country where transfer pricing has been on the radar for quite some time versus a South Africa where maybe transfer pricing was not as much of an issue for them, historically speaking. So tell us a little bit about those two experiences. And were they the same? Were they different? Did you have a lot of challenges? They were, they were very different. So to your point, Germany was a very developed tax authority. They had a lot of structure already in place around transfer pricing. And so a lot of what I was doing, and I was very early in my career as well, but it was reacting and documenting and making sure that we had everything in place and kind of all the T's crossed and I's dotted in a very German style. Um, however, South Africa, as you could imagine, was very different. The tax authority was very much still learning and implementing a lot of the standards that are common practice in the US or in Europe, um, but are fairly new to, to Africa in general. Um, but it was also a great experience because they didn't have to learn as they went. They, they were able to look to other established tax authorities and kind of take those lessons in stride. Um, but I went down to South Africa to try and help build the understanding of transfer pricing in actually the entirety of the continent, so the whole region. And so we would go into greater Africa and lead symposiums and conferences to try and educate both the tax authorities, but also the clients on how, how they could best respond to some of the changes in the atmosphere that was going on there. I, I feel like you have such a fascinating background, and we can talk about that for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> but let's talk about the digital economy. To level set, let's first start with the level set with our audience, right? So the OECD came out with Action Plan 1, specifically related to addressing the tax challenges of the digital economy. But what exactly, how do you define, and what do you hear is, is the definition of the digital economy? Well, that's also a good question. Um, it's interesting because if you actually look up the definition of economy as a standalone word, um, it's the wealth and resources of a country or region. And so when we speak about the digital economy, I think we have to separate ourselves a little bit from that traditional definition because digital in and of itself is a bit of a nebulous term. It doesn't always have a home in a country or region. So I think that 
you're kind of hitting on, by asking for that definition, the starting point of our problem, and that is defining something that traditionally has a very finite geographical sphere to something that's a bit more broad. Right. And so the digital economy really doesn't have a home, so to speak. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to have a home, right? It's cloud-based, just like where Fiona lives. Okay, well, enough about Erin. Just kidding, of course. But let's move on to the mysteries of the digital economy. Why doesn't our current tax system work in the digital economy? Can we redefine a taxation nexus, and where does value occur? Even I don't know the answer to that one. Well, it's tricky stuff, Fiona. And, and, and we talk about the digital economy, things like e-commerce, e-business, that, that sort of infra- infrastructure that makes up this digital economy, right? And according to the UN, that market is worth over $22 trillion, which is very significant. And as Matt noted earlier, you know, who, who are the players in that digital space? I mean, it is the concept here is fascinating because... Uber is one of the largest um, facilitators of, of uh, like taxi-related services, and yet they have no cars at all. They don't own any assets. Airbnb um, naturally facilitates, you know, the rental of, of different um, homes, you know, if you're traveling, and yet they own no real estate assets. So what is the problem right now? with respect to taxing the digital economy? Well, I think the taxation of the digital digital economy may present a problem, but the digital economy itself, I would say, isn't a problem. I think the digital economy has given us access to markets and businesses that weren't even on the horizon 10 years ago. So it's definitely opened up the idea of globalization. It's opened up the idea of a global business, and it's given different traditional businesses, you know, brick and mortar businesses, access to markets which previously were potentially not even a conceivable market. So there's a lot of opportunity there, both for businesses, but also for tax authorities. And I think the problem for tax authorities is that largely they're reactionary to that. So we have a tax system that was developed in the 1920s. As you can imagine, that's a bit antiquated to respond to exactly what's happening on our sphere right now. Um, And it, it traditionally taxed businesses where they had a taxation nexus or a physical presence. Um, So that was what kind of drives our traditional permanent establishment rules and things like that. It made sense back then when business was a bit simpler. Um, You had a storefront, you had a physical manifestation of your business, a property or something of that nature. Um, But now you have businesses in foreign countries where you may not have any individuals. Um, You have businesses that are run from one location but actually touch clientele in another jurisdiction. And so the the idea of a permanent establishment in the traditional way that we think of it may not be sufficient any longer. Right. And it, not only on the corporate tax front, but I remember, so my husband was born and raised in New York, and he one of the reasons he didn't want to move outside of New York was because when you ordered from... Um, Amazon, you, you didn't have to pay taxes as a consumer <laughs> because there was no warehouse. Mm-hmm. And so, or actually maybe maybe in New York you did have to pay taxes, but I convinced him to move to New Jersey where you didn't have to pay taxes on the consumption of Amazon products. And he said, okay, well, that's a great reason to move to New Jersey. <laughs> Until it turned out that Amazon ended up building a warehouse in New Jersey and then we had to pay tax. And he's like, what's the point of moving to New Jersey? <laughs> then we moved back to New York. But anyways, I think, I think that, you know, it, the, this, this question is challenging and clearly there's no right answer. But it also, it, there, there, there's this concept here, right, that tax authorities are, are latching onto and that the OECD is trying to define. And that's the idea of value creation, right? So what is, can you explain value creation to our audience here or what people are trying to, what's the intention of that? Well, I think Mimi, if I could explain value creation, I might have a better job. (laughs) (laughs) However, it's very complicated, as you can imagine. I think value creation um, is defined differently by different companies. It's defined differently in different businesses. If we look again at a traditional brick and mortar business, value creation, it may be in the type of mechanics that they have there, either personnel or the actual machinery. It could be defined um, as the engineers who designed it. But if we look at the digital economy, it's a much more hard to define 
idea because that value could be created in a data point. It could be created in the analysis of that data point, in the production of that data point onto a platform. Or I think part of the challenge right now is value being created by the participants on a platform. And that's the next step. So once that platform is in existence, who's accessing that platform? Where are the marketing intangibles related to that platform? So every step along the way, if you pick up your phone and you access, whether it be, I mean, it could be a big name like Facebook or something like that, that people are accessing on a on a fairly regular basis, or it could be Amazon, to your point. So where you're sitting, does that create value for that company? Or is it the company itself that could be, again, in the cloud, or it could be anywhere else? So it's a very difficult to define term for especially the digital economy, I think. So, I mean, if the tax authority were to say that they now want to tax the company who doesn't have a physical presence in in a particular country, I mean... How much would they tax? How much could they tax? And should it be at the same tax rate as a company who has a physical presence in that particular jurisdiction? Well, there's a good example of this. In 2017, France actually sued Google for $1.3 billion in back taxes for 2005 to 2010. Um, The case was a six-year dispute. Google Ireland, um, as a Google subsidiary, sold online ads to clients in France. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, the Google search engines in France felt that they were, France was owed the taxes on those sales because Google had profited from French clients. Um, the Paris administrative, though, ultimately sided with Google Ireland because the company doesn't have a permanent establishment in France. So when we talk about how exactly those entities should be taxed, I think we have to be very careful to uh, when we apply these older ideas or let's call them current ideas, not necessarily older, Mm -hmm. Um, but when you apply current ideas of permanent establishment, but also that we don't provide an environment that allows for a beneficial rate to be applied to technology companies or or companies in the digital space. Because if you look at companies like Amazon, they're paying a significantly less amount of tax overall. um, Well, yeah, the headline was Amazon had an effective tax rate of 0%. Right. And, and I, I'm sure that they, they pay tax somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but it, is, it is, if you compare that to a traditional bookseller, something that's a significant difference. And so I can absolutely recognize why tax authorities want to come to a landing on this. But I think that that's where we hit at the importance of this conversation, is that when those tax authorities go about trying to define how they tax the digital space, that they do it in a way that isn't a one-size-fits-all, that it's a way that is agile, if you will, to address the different issues of different types of companies. I just want to chime in here, uh, not only with with uh, just emphasizing what that can do to a brand, uh, you know, not uh, having a headline that says mm-hmm. you're paying a, an effective zero tax rate and, and, and the importance of everything we're talking here. I also want to give the first code word uh, for our CPE listeners. And that code word is, I see a lot of people shuffling their pens and pads and want to write it down, so I'll give you all a second. It is incognito. Again, that word is incognito. I am not incognito, to use it effectively in a sentence. Anyway, I'm sorry. Again, back to uh, Mimi and Aaron. You know, I feel like that's a, that's a pretty good word to describe the OECD action plan guidance with respect to the digital economy at this point in time, right? So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. There's action plan one, right? Can you tell us what, what that action plan one actually says? Is there any sort of, uh, you know, guidance in terms of what their, what the plans are? Guidance may be a strong word. Yeah. <laughs> um, the report does highlight the issues of the digital economy, but I, I don't think it offers strong and fast solutions to that. Um, they've said that their main goal, and I put that in quotes, is the digital issue becoming um, designated as their number one priority. However, prioritizing it and solving it is, is a very different um, process. Um, but they did conclude, however, that we do need a clear definition of taxation nexus. So this idea that's traditionally been where you have people located um, to maybe moving towards a more market-based approach, um, including allocation to marketing intangibles, that they need a methodology to determine which profits can be taxed and whose. Right. And, 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 and clearly the OECD is asking the right questions and, and starting to put some 
uh, momentum into trying to figure out the uh, an appropriate solution. But countries are reacting, right? They are, and they're reacting by taking it into their own hands because, as you can imagine, this isn't a process that can happen overnight. It's not something that the OECD can just decide or roll out a plan, um, but it's something that's going to need a lot of consensus from both OECD countries but also others. Um, and <clears throat> one example is Spain considering introducing a tax similar to the European Commission's proposed digital services tax. Um, and implementing this to recognize this tax, excuse me, effective from 2018 forward. So it's actually a retroactive looking proposition. And that's that's very interesting if you think about a country like Spain taking a position like this that, that has even implications in the past. And I think Argentina had enacted a sort of a consumption tax that right. seems to be working at this point. Uh, actually, I'd like to take this opportunity to solicit uh, Fiona's knowledge. Uh, Fiona, can you tell us about some of the ways countries are tackling the digital economy on their own? I'd be happy to, Matt. India, for example, has an equalization levy for online advertising revenue earned by non-resident companies. In Australia and New Zealand, businesses that profit from online sales must register for goods and service tax. You get the idea. So... Based on based on what you were saying before, Aaron, I think this is a good opportunity to say to explain. So the EU recently did propose a digital tax strategy. Can you tell us a little bit about what that involves? Sure. They proposed to adopt a framework for digital permanent establishment, um, and again, that's in kind of quotations. That's the what they're speaking to this idea of a traditional permanent establishment and, and trying to expand it into the digital space. Um, but this is across the EU. So multinational companies would need to meet one of the following criteria, either 7 million euro in annual revenues, more than 100,000 users, or more than 3,000 contracts for digital services within businesses in the EU. So as you can imagine, if we think about some of the big names that that would, that would touch on, that really does hit a lot of the the spectrum of companies that are they're trying to to address so some of the the bigger ones out there right but i think that the proposal is expected to go into effect after 2020 that's right um, which is actually not that far away but in the short term are there any uh, short term plans there are so there's um actually let me just refer to my notes here quickly okay. um there is a plan to um, implement a digital services tax, um, and that has an annual worldwide revenue threshold of 750 million euros, um, total EU revenues of 50 million, and it's a turnover tax that implements a 3% tax across the board on revenue selling in the advertising space, online marketplaces, and sales of user-collected data. So this is an interesting one. If I look at a company like my own, where we have a lot of user-generated data, mm -hmm. um, but we're not a traditional technology company. Right. And so if you think about the impact of that, when you have a broad-reaching proposal like this, it's really intended for one type of company. However, the impact on that could have a much more far-reaching kind of uh, knock-on effect. And so one thing that we're trying to do from, a, from our perspective is try and prepare ourselves for these types of types of regulations coming down the line because I think it's it's a very important piece of where we go next and how we plan strategically for the future. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you, you bring up a really good point in that this plan or this tax strategy, the intention is to target a certain type of company. And yet there are a lot of knock-on effects like Omarsha McLennan who are going to be impacted by this potential change in the regulatory environment. And, and so there, there clearly has to be a lot of downside to this, right? There are. I think that the 3% tax could, could apply even if companies aren't profitable. So if you look at the, the language within this proposed legislation, it ignores the costs associated with revenues. So even if you're not a, a profitable entity, you're still paying this 3% tax. Mm. Um, you have companies with slim margins that have, could have tax rates exceeding 50%. You have double, double and even triple taxation. Um, and also you have a little bit of pushback from countries like the U.S. So the U.S. being a little bit less likely to adopt this because they've deemed it unreasonable, discriminatory, or unjustifiable if you look at the Trade Act of 1974. So there are definitely 
some hiccups within this proposal, um, but it's something that I think that tax authorities are really just trying to put something out there that allows companies, whether it be a company like MMC or a company, a traditional more tech-based company like your Airbnb or Amazon, to react to these so that they can get some feedback before they before they go into something full swing. Right. And then earlier you had mentioned that at MMC, you guys are sort of planning for this and you're preparing for the potential changes in the in the taxation of the digital economy. What are some of the things that multinational companies can do or you know should start to think about or implement in preparation for these types of changes? I think the number one thing that I would recommend would be to stay nimble. Um, we're really, from a strategic perspective, trying to map out and analyze all the what-if scenarios. So mm-hmm. what if they do this? What if they do that? What if they do this? And really understand what the implications could be. I think one of the biggest things from, from our perspective is understanding the trajectory of our business as well. So being in a company that's not a traditional tech company, but understanding that every single entity around the world is likely to have some element of, of digital or technology that's impacting their business Right, now. if you're not, you, you're, you're, you, you become ancient and maybe irrelevant, right? Especially in the international space. I mm-hmm. think that the, the only way to really kind of be accessing the global economy is to have an element of tech-enabled services, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn in that, but I think that staying nimble and understanding the trajectory of our business is critical for us because as we develop different technologies, those technologies may not be a game changer in our space. It may be really more of table stakes technology, but it's going to be technology that enables our business on a daily basis. And as such, we need to understand where we're building it out, what are the commercial reasons for building it out, where we're building it out, and how do we speak to the developers who are actually on the ground doing this work? Can a tax person speak to a a technology person and have a meaningful conversation about where they're whether they're outsourcing or, or building something in-house how right. do you go about that right and and you definitely can speak to one another whether or not you'll understand one another <laughs> is the real question at hand um i you know i was i was just as you were talking i, w- I was thinking about the truth of the matter is that there is a there's clearly a technology element and component to businesses that that are going to help, you know, well, they're going to be table stakes, to your point, and, or help elevate a business to go to the next level. But the digital economy goes beyond that, too. You guys, we, we talked about this, uh, you know, last time we met. You guys are collecting a lot of data, and with data collection, there's going to be potential opportunities to figure out how to monetize that. That's right. right. So there's even more just beyond the technological develop, but the creation of different business models that are going to emerge from this whole idea of a digital economy and, and the, you know, the data collection and, um, and, and how to figure out how, what, best, what ways you can actually monetize that into other I, ways, I think right? that's a really good point, and it's something that when I say staying plugged into the business, it's being a part of that conversation um, in the first instance. It's understanding where we may be collecting a bunch of data right now, this large kind of pool of data, that data may not have a purpose. It may not have a monetizable goal at the moment, but it's sitting somewhere in some cloud-based technology. How is it that we can stay competitive in our environment Mm -hmm. by utilizing that technology or that data? And how do we collect data points from all over the world and analyze it or streamline it into a meaningful platform. I'm Mary Lynn from Cross Border Solutions. I am not an economist, um, but I have read more than you can ever believe on this <laughs> subject. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I just wanted to see something here, because um, I wanted to see how the digital economy would work in terms of a situational experience. So I live in New York, okay? So a few months ago, I'm on Facebook. And I'm going through my news feeds and reading all my stuff. And suddenly an ad for Mahabis, Mahabis slippers shows up on my Facebook feed, okay? They're based in England. And so I continue reading. I click on the ad and I think, okay, this looks interesting. But I don't buy anything. So I leave Facebook. A few days later, a week later, I sign on again. And I'm reading, reading, reading. 
there's that ad again for those slippers, and now they're looking better to me. So I click <laughs> on them again, okay? So I'm thinking, maybe, 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 da-da-da-da-da. A few days later, click on the ad again, because there it is, and I buy the slippers. Now the company is based in England, I'm based in New York, Facebook is based California, is that right? So what's the taxation plan there? Is it, is it, um, it, am I paying that tax because I'm the buyer in New York? Is Facebook paying, obligated to pay a tax because they're showing me the ad, and they're not only showing me the ads, but they are targeting me because every time I log on, there's those, there's those slippers again. Or is it the company in England because they've actually profited from my purchase, theoretically? I think it's a it's a very good demonstration of the idea of the value chain and where exactly the value is created. So the question would be, is that value created in the tangible brick and mortar company that's creating the slippers and producing them and also shipping them out, doing all the distribution and everything like that? Is it in Facebook, who is the marketing company essentially, or the marketing side of that piece of value mm -hmm. chain? Or is it the consumer? So is it some sort of a consumption tax? And I think that that's hitting on the question of where is value created? Is it in one of those places or is it in all three of those well, places? Well, that's what I was going to ask. Is it in all of them? That's, a, that's, that's the challenge, right, Mary Lynn? That's the challenge right now when it comes to the digital economy. Those, those are the questions that people are asking at right. this moment in time. And no one has the answer. Truthfully, it even goes beyond that, Mary Lynn, because you, you gave us a very simple scenario. But let's, let's build on that, right? Because Mary Lynn is a, a U.S. participant on Facebook, first and foremost, right? Facebook drives gets their money from advertising revenues and but those advertising revenues for a UK based company they're able to target that marketing to you because you participate on Facebook sure it's not because Facebook found you and yeah. said right but there's a little element of both there's but where's the value i mean is it the fact that you as a consumer are on the platform in order for the UK company to target you? Mm -hmm. and, or is it the technology that Facebook developed in California, right? Yeah. Where all the developers are sitting and, and the brainchild yeah. <laughs> of, of the platform is sitting? Or, or is it, you know, does it go, is it attributable back to the fact that those shoes are are incredible and you were just attracted to the shoes regardless of the platform regardless of right you know you being you using facebook or social media or anything of those well and to add another dimension to that is i think what popped up for me was a google ad oh so i do so i think there's i think it was like a google, a google ad through other, facebook yeah right. that's right so. Well, and not only that, but but when we talk about double taxation too one of the risks that we run is if we if we provide a one-size-fits-all solution to the idea of the digital economy and we try and answer your question, Mary Lynn, in a simplistic way and we say that one or two or all are contributing to this value chain, if we don't come to a consensus on that right. and the U.S. has a different opinion than the U.K. has a different opinion than Google and Ireland, right. then there's a potential that the sale of that slip that, that set of slippers could actually be taxed in a different manner in every location right and so could I in fact then for being the purchaser be taxed in different at a different rate or more than usual because they're coming from so many different places. I would say that you as the purchaser will feel the impact I will of feel that the tax. <laughs> yes. Whether or not it's through the tax or through the purchase price, but exactly. somehow or another, you're going to feel the impact. Of My that. husband will really look forward to that. <laughs> a global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. 
So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Well, the other question I had, because I know they're rolling out some temporary solutions, and temporary solutions, I think, are great in, you know, for temporary purposes, but they also have a way of becoming permanent solutions. And I was wondering, is there a danger there with, say, this 3% tax for the digital tax strategy or digital service tax? Um, is that a potential concern? I think it's a concern for all the, the weaknesses in it that we highlighted, um, simply because if it were to be something that were implemented in a, a more permanent manner, then you're still going to run into the issues of double taxation. You're still going to run into this idea that the cost base is, is not accounted for. And so if it's not something that at least has potential for refinement, then I do think it's, it's something that, that is in danger of putting us in a position that we don't want to be in. Right, I mean, inertia. It, it's, it's, also, it's also dangerous because it's a, it's a very unilateral way to deal with this global problem, yep. right? So Catherine Amos, I don't know if you know who that is. She's a VP of TPN Tax at, at Johnson & Johnson. She actually, at the OECD Digital Conference, she was quoted as saying, for simplicity and certainty, we would pay more tax. Now, we have a live audience. I, I'd love to take a poll or get any thoughts from you guys. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah. Anyone agree with that statement or have an opinion either way, right? For simplicity and certainty, would you or your company pay more tax? Yes. Um, I'm Janana Bustillos. I'm the global tax director from Comscore, based out of side of D.C. Um, and to say that yes, that the company would pay more tax. I don't really know if I would agree with that because from them and the J&J &J perspective, they are consumer goods and you just pass that along to your consumer. Right. And eventually when I think of this whole digital economy and the digital taxes, I think my company is also a digital technology company and we've been looking at the UK and France and whatnot. I mean, eventually that becomes a cost that you have to figure out how do you pass on somewhere or how do you cut costs somewhere else to balance that out. I don't believe that a company just says, we're just going to pay it and, and reduce our risk. I mean, technically that is one way to do it, and especially a big company like J&J &J can make that statement. But a smaller company like mine that is struggling um, – every penny and every dollar is kind of scrutinized. Right. So to think of, you know, just 3%, thinking of the, what we do in the EU, we, we would definitely hit all of those points um, of being subject to a digital tax when we weren't actually the target um, companies that right. were trying to be affected or trying to be um, targeted by right. that proposal. You, you were not the the company taking advantage of these tax arbitrage situations, and yet Correct. you're going to feel the implications of this new reform. Yes, and that's something we have to keep tracking and, you know, figure out a balance of how, how do we actually cope with that if it should come to pass. Right, right. Any other companies who, who feel like that statement might apply to them? If you had tax certainty and simplicity, would your company pay more tax for that? <laughs> I think we'd love certainty and pay less tax. Right. <laughs> well, you can have your cake and eat it too, Aaron. <laughs> Certainly. Uh, my name is Craig Messner. I'm with uh, Clean Harbors, and we're a publicly traded company. And that's the answer. We're a publicly traded company. Right. Right. That's just not going to fly. Right. You're gonna, you, you're, you have almost a fiduciary responsibility to pay the lowest tax. You're supposed to do things right, and that's what push, push
puts pressure on these government entities to get it right. And, you know, politicians, it works through the, it works through the ranks of the politicians. If it's, if it's not reasonable, then there's more pressure on them. Now, you'd mentioned, you know, this potential tax in Spain. I think if it's, if it's based on revenue, what I look, what I foresee is that when you click down on it, it's going to be like a sales tax. It just, that's the simplest way, and it, and it will demonstrate to the consumer that that's what that's for. Uh, that would alleviate any problems with, if you're not doing well, um, well, it's, it's almost like you have a fiduciary responsibility to collect it, and it's just an, another administrative task with sales tax or, or, uh, or VAT. That's how I see it, and again, as a publicly traded company, you, you really you can't. don't want to pay more yeah, tax. Yeah, you're not going to pay more to. tax. Exactly. It, it, just, it just won't happen. Well, and I, I think it puts a lot of pressure on thinking strategically as well. Because if I look at MMC with our main competitor being located in the UK, there's already a tax advantage there, right? If you look at just their tax rate and our tax rate based on the sim simple fact of where, our, where we're headquartered. Um, so how we strategically think about these things is a responsibility we have to our shareholders, and I fully agree with that. You know, Craig, you, you brought up an interesting idea, which I think a lot of people had considered that the implications or the ramifications of this new digital tax strategy, or, or, or it might ultimately impose the, the buyers, right, as a consumption tax of some, por some point. But I feel like that just creates a cyclical, like uh, just a cycle uh, of you know of ramifications where basically it doesn't achieve the intention of the digital tax to begin with, which was to tax the corporations, not the consumers, right? right? So it's this vicious cycle of you know trying to get to an answer that achieves a certain result, and and then having come you know coming full circle to be like we're back where we started. Well, yeah. By doing that, though, I think the the country that implements that tax, their grievance is the fact that you're going into their country and they're not getting any benefit. Yeah. Now, by doing it at the point of purchase, they will get that revenue, and that would seem, it seems pretty transparent that that would be a solution, whether it be, you know, but they, that would alleviate their grievance. Right. Well, but then, you know, it's always a, Wait, what is, what is that expression I'm looking for, Matthew? You might be able to help me, but right it's... here for you. <laughs> well, it's 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 almost the idea that uh, they they might it might it might uh, address the grievance in the short term, but they might get more greedy when they continue to see that um, that tax further gets passed on to the consumers, and then <laughs> and then it just increases the bottom line of the corporations, right? So it's right. yeah, there's. There's implications of that for sure. It just actually, my curious being totally peaked. I come from a background of world policy. I used to actually make podcasts for the World Policy Institute. If anybody's familiar, um, I'm curious as to whether you think nation states are fully capable in the law in that long term of imposing uh, significant taxes uh, just in the digital space, or do we need, uh, or would it really require? Um, you know, some international authority, some uh, something named like some kind of digital. Uh, I'm trying to imagine like some sort of international, uh, uh, you know, tax agency or something well, we like have the, the OECD. European Commission, you know? yes. We have the yeah, OECD. Right. We have the United Nations. Mm -hmm. So there are all these legislative bodies out there that come together to help promote cooperation and economic mm -hmm. development. Right. And to your point, help countries institute um, legislation that's going to make them competitive, right? Digital right. Create well, the OECD has a tax force specifically for the digital economy that mm -hmm. they've already formed, and they have a list of the top things that they want to knock out in the near term, and mm -hmm. they've committed to a 2020 deadline for that. Right. I, I guess then from there, do you imagine that it, the, need for, the need for this would 
uh, would necessitate an even larger, more important authority into the future, like the creation of, uh, of something. What, like a global tax police? <laughs> uh, I know, I, I, and I know that's probably everybody's worst nightmare. Yeah. Um, that that being said, I mean, it, it, you know, going back, uh, you know, decades before uh, the OECD, uh, just trying to imagine, uh, you know, a world where, where, where we'd be, you know, imagining these authorities. Do you, do you is that something you would foresee, or do you? Uh, see the international authorities as they exist now just uh, continuing to exist as they do uh, in trying to um, you know bring tax compliance to the digital space well I think that if you'd asked the same question about something like the OECD before the OECD exactly existed, you're on my wavelength <laughs> yeah then you then you may have gotten pushback you may have had a bit of of kind of reticence for countries to jump on board with a ultra, I mean, with a superseding body that tells them what to do. No one wants to be told what to do. However, the OECD has issued initiatives like BEPS, and a lot of people have jumped on board without as much hesitation as I expected to see, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so as you see these trends taking place where people are talking about this, this is important to every country. Um, every country wants to have their fair share of this space taxed. As Mimi noted, there's trillions of dollars on the table um, to be taxed. And so until we have an answer for this, I think there's always going to be a vacuum there. Um, is the OECD the right body to do that? I'm sure they would think yes. Um, but it depends on the answers that they come up with, honestly. If, they, if they're able to tackle this in a meaningful way that addresses not only the big players in the technology space, but also companies like we've talked about today that aren't necessarily tech companies but have that breadth and that depth in their industry, then there, there may be someone else who has to come on board for that to happen. All right. Well, I think that that sort of wraps up our session on the digital economy. I really appreciate everyone's perspective on that and, and the insight and input. And Aaron, we are so thankful to have you here as well um, to provide your perspective I will hand it over back to you, Matthew. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer, cross-border solution AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp thank you so much mimi and thank you again erin uh that was a, a pretty terrific discussion and i really appreciated uh, all the feedback that we, we that we got from folks in the audience uh as you can see there are still a lot of unanswered questions pertaining to the digital economy uh, but at least you can be sure about one thing, and that it's absolutely time for what we want to know, a rapid-fire round of questions, and Aaron Perks is in the hot seat. Are you ready, Aaron? I hope so. <laughs> Here we go. When it comes to transfer pricing, what common mistakes um, do you see multinational companies make over and over again? I think multinational companies find themselves in a position of planning for today rather than planning for tomorrow. And I think that that's, that's the biggest issue that I see in both my own company and trying to be forward-looking, but also in other companies, that it's very difficult sometimes to see, see into the future and to know exactly how we should be planning. But having that agility and that ability to do so and baking that into the strategy is, is a critical piece. 
for sure. And I know uh, for a lot of folks in this room, they feel like they're doing uh, a lot of different work than maybe what they were doing, you know, five years ago or e even longer than that. But how is your transfer pricing team working differently than they, than they would have been five or ten years ago? It's very different, Matt. <laughs> um, the main difference, I think, is is actually the use of technology to be to be dangerously on topic here. Um, but the use of technology and understanding our entity structure and rolling out global documentation and having solutions and policies that are global reach. So having a policy that touches not only Argentina, but Germany and the US and the UK, that all of those are on, on the same page with one another. I think we had a lot less of that going on in the past. Um, and so it's, it's definitely a move towards something that unifies our business as a whole. Um, and, share, and helps to share policies and information across cross-border. But we also focus a lot more on planning than we used to, mm. a lot more on that strategic space than, than we traditionally have simply because um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Mm. We, we, we spoke uh, earlier today with uh, our previous episode guest, uh, Dr. Silva, a little bit about the skills uh, needed in transfer pricing today. But what is the most surprising, I guess that's a key word there, most surprising skill uh, you feel you need uh, to be a transfer pricing expert right now? Seeing into the future. <laughs> <laughs> that crystal ball. Uh, yeah, exactly. No, ag agility to be able to respond. Um, it really mm. is the ability to be able to, to pivot when need be um, and being able to structure yourself in a way that, that allows you to do that mm -hmm. when the time comes. For sure. And uh, I know this is probably a dream scenario for everyone, so an extreme hypothetical, but if your boss added an extra 100K uh, to your department budget and said you could use it to improve the department any way you want, how would you use it? Well, I was hoping this question would be more like a genie where I could just wish for yeah. one thing and then I would just wish for more things. Unfortunately, um, I'm neither Will Smith nor Robin Williams. So. <laughs> um, with that extra 100K, I would definitely invest that in technology. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to streamline some of the things that we're doing to pr provide some transparency and clarity across the globe for us. Um, but I would, I would invest in technology and, and a better coffee machine. <laughs> Just a little slice out of that uh, 100K. But that, that speaks to, uh, you know, the, what we're seeing uh, from authorities, from, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot on the taxpayer side of the, the software arms race uh, that goes into this. But uh, just for our last question, what do you know now that you wish you knew? Like that old Faces Rod Stewart song, if anybody's a fan. What do you wish you, you, knew, uh, you know now that you wish you knew when you first started your career about transfer pricing? I really like this question, um, but it's a funny answer for me because I really enjoy the learning process. I think so much of transfer yeah. pricing is learning by doing, and it's something that you actively have to participate in. And so had I been given the keys to the city, I think that I would be a lesser professional than I am today. However, that said, I do think it would have been nice to know the impact that the digital space would have. And I think that that's probably true across the board in every industry and in every business. Every walk of life, right? Exactly. That if we had invested in Bitcoin at the right moment or in, in whatever technology, if, if I just bought that Amazon stock, then we'd be in a better place today. But I really think that um, maybe taking a developer course or doing mm -hmm. something that would prepare me better to go out to the business and understand what it is that we're doing would have been a great investment of my time. I, I got to say, for the guests that I've asked that question, you know, what do you wish you knew now, uh, you know, today, uh, it, 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 in the transfer pricing space, I, I never cease to be surprised about how often the answer is, I, you know, learning is part of it, and the mystery is all part of it. And in a deep philosophical level, that, that's what makes this discipline uh, just so interesting uh, to me. Uh, anyway, I really, really appreciate uh, you, you being here. Everybody who, who came to the, to the quarterly summit, I just want to thank you again. And thank you for being here, Aaron. Uh, special thanks to our live audience. You've been really terrific. I really appreciate this. Uh, keep the transfer pricing questions coming. Post them on our Facebook page, and we'll answer them right here on The Fiona Show. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get the lowdown on transfer pricing every week. Until next time, may all your transactions be airtight in the future and audit-free. Thank you so much. Everybody. Thank you so much.